This is Law for Community Workers on the Go, a podcast for community and health workers. In this episode, you will hear from Callum Hare, a lawyer from the Mental Health Advocacy Service at Legal Aid New South Wales, and Dr Jean Hollis, a psychiatrist and tribunal member at the New South Wales Mental Health Review Tribunal. This episode explores mental illness and what process people go through at the Mental Health Review Tribunal. You'll also hear about the Legal Aid New South Wales Mental Health Advocacy Service and when it is appropriate for you to refer clients to them. Hi, my name's Josh. I'm a solicitor in the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of this land that I'm recording on. I'd also like to pay respect to the elders, both past and present, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Can I start off by asking you to introduce yourselves? I'm Callum Hare and I'm a solicitor with the Mental Health Advocacy Service at Legal Aid New South Wales. And my name is Jean Hollis. I'm a psychiatrist and I sit on the Mental Health Review Tribunal. And Callum, can you explain to us what the Mental Health Advocacy Service does? So the Mental Health Advocacy Service provides legal advice and information to people regarding the well, New South Wales mental health legislation. That includes the Mental Health Act and the Guardianship Act. Uh, we also provide representation to people both before the Mental Health Review Tribunal as well as before the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal in relation to financial management orders and guardianship applications. Our audience is community workers, so is there anything that you would like to community workers to know that you do not do? I guess uh, we don't provide generalist legal advice to people who are experiencing mental health issues. However, obviously there are other teams within legal aid that provide advice in certain areas of law that may be of interest to community workers, uh, such as the government law team who can assist people in relation to NDIS reviews and Centrelink reviews. If a community worker is listening and they are assisting someone who has been involuntarily detained under the Mental Health Act, that person may also be experiencing other legal issues such as issues with housing, employment or consumer law issues with debts. But am I correct in thinking that your service wouldn't assist with those legal issues? That's correct. And sometimes it's useful making contact with us first because we can give advice obviously around the uh, issues concerning their involuntary detention, but we can also then make the referrals to the other teams within legal aid who are um, more experienced in those areas of law. It would be great if you could kind of set the scene of how somebody ends up being assisted by your service. So what, what's the process? How, how does that end up happening that somebody gets in contact with you? So once someone's taken to hospital and scheduled, so to speak, and when I use that term, I'm referring to uh, someone who's been um, essentially held at the hospital against their will, they will go before the Mental Health Review Tribunal as soon as practicable. And the Mental Health Act in New South Wales says that people who are appearing before the tribunal at that first appearance for a mental health inquiry must be legally represented. So legal aid will attend the hospital uh, normally either the day before the mental health inquiry or on the day of the mental health inquiry to take instructions from all of the clients who are on that, that inquiry list. Is there much of a gap between when someone is detained at a mental health institution and when they appear before the Mental Health Review Tribunal? So when someone's first uh, taken to hospital, the Mental Health Act says that they must be assessed by a doctor within the first 12 hours. And following that, they must be assessed by another doctor within a reasonable uh, period of time after that. And uh, if they're found to be what's called a, a mentally ill person, then they will go before the Mental Health Review Tribunal as soon as practicable. Often that can be up to two weeks, probably after their original admission to hospital. Though. 
Mm-hmm. So there can be some gap, yes. And when you see that client, it was the day before they have their mental health through tribunal that you get instructions from them about... That's correct. So normally the hospital will provide us with progress notes, probably for the week prior to the mental health tribunal hearing, as well as a report from their uh, treating psychiatrist. And so you you read through that report and then you're you're having a conversation with your client about what it says in that report. Is that right? That's correct. So essentially there's certain criteria that the mental health tribunal need to be satisfied of to make an involuntary patient order. They need to be satisfied that the person has a mental illness and uh, or is exhibiting symptoms of an illness and that as a result of those symptoms they're a risk of serious harm to themselves or others. So ordinarily the report will be addressing those issues. So there is a need to discuss that with the patient, uh, but often that needs to happen in a sensitive manner just because often there's information there that's been provided, for example, from family members or friends, and it's important to also respect the confidentiality of that person because the last thing you want is to uh, risk damaging relationships between the patient and their family who are often their, their main or only supports. And what what is that definition that you're looking at when you say mental illness and the symptoms? So there needs to be an illness that's characterised by symptoms of either hallucinations, delusions, a disorder of thought or a disturbance of mood. And because of one or more of those symptoms, they're a risk of serious harm to themselves or others. And then one really important point to make is that it's not necessarily physical harm. So often people immediately think, oh no, people think that I'm at risk of causing harm to others or I'm I'm likely to perpetrate violence. Whilst that is the case in some instances, very often it's simply that there's a risk that they may harm their relationships or they may harm their reputation or uh, even their own finances or they're simply at risk of misadventure, which uh, can often be the case if someone's, for example, experiencing auditory or visual hallucinations, there may be concerns that they may place themselves at risk by engaging in and misadventure. Mm-hmm. And when you say misadventure, it's that somebody's putting their, themselves at risk of danger, is that? That's correct. So for example, it might be the case that they're at risk of stepping out on a major road in response to an auditory or visual hallucination. And we'll be speaking to Dr. Hollis about this a little bit later, but, and I guess it varies a lot from person to person, but with the clients that you see, is, is there often quite a high level of insight into the condition that the person may have? really varies from person to person. Um, Often at the, what we refer to as the mental health inquiry before the tribunal, that's occurring not long after admission. So often at that point, people are still perhaps have quite active symptoms of their illness and therefore their insight is likely to be less. Um, However, when we represent people before uh, mental health reviews, which are later on into their admission. Perhaps there's um, their mental state has improved by that time and so has their insight. And insight also varies because um, for some people it might be their very first admission with symptoms of a psychotic illness. For others, they may have a, have a long history and therefore um, for those who are having their first admission with symptoms of a psychotic illness, obviously it's very confronting for them and the insight at that point in time maybe minimal and that's why it's very very important that they build a good therapeutic relationship with the treating team early on. Mm-hmm. If in that report that's been prepared by the treating team and kind of based on your your conversation with your client it, it appears to you that some of the things that that your client is telling you may be delusional but on the other hand it may not be 
How much of it is it your role to go out and corroborate what, what your client is telling you that that has happened and try to find maybe to speak to people that were involved and, and try to say, okay, actually, while this may be improbable, it actually has happened mm-hmm. and to present that evidence to the tribunal. So this can sometimes be challenging. I guess we're fortunate enough to have the progress notes from the treating team as well as a report from the doctor. And that's often of great use because the treating team have already spoken to family members and friends and have already corroborated or found that that information provided by the patient cannot be corroborated. So often we we benefit essentially from that information that is already available. So more often than not, it's quite apparent by the time that we see the patient whether or not their beliefs are grounded in reality or not. But it's not always an easy thing to discuss with patients. And I find that the easiest way to do it is to say that, make it clear, obviously, that I'm a lawyer, I'm not a, not a medical professional, and to say that we have the benefit of the, um, the experts at the hospital and it's their view that uh, the patient's beliefs are not grounded in reality and it may be a symptom of their illness. Uh, That's not to say that there's not rare examples where a person's beliefs may turn out to be sort of partially based in reality, partially delusional, or perhaps uh, not delusional at all, but they're certainly the exception. And uh, I'm sure Dr. Hollis will um, be able to comment on that later. And one other thing that I'm quite interested in is that I imagine that some of the clients that you're getting instructions from, you may form a view that they don't have capacity How does that situation work where you're able to represent that client at the tribunal and putting forward instructions from a client where where you've formed a view that they don't have capacity? Yeah, so the Mental Health Act provides an exception for us as solicitors to take instructions from people who would perhaps otherwise not have capacity to instruct. Uh, And so that's an exception that applies to us just in terms of us appearing before the tribunal for those clients that wouldn't apply, for example, if that client tried to provide us with instructions about any other legal issue that they may have. And so if a client said to you, I don't want to be detained here, I want to be outside in the community with my friends and family, you would put that to the tribunal as as the client's wishes? That's correct, because essentially we're there is their, their voice and it's important that the tribunal know what the patient's perspective is. And one of the main reasons the tribunal also like to hear directly from the patient rather than the solicitor is because it gives the tribunal a good understanding as to uh, that person's level of insight into their illness. This is one thing that I'm, that I'm quite interested in is if you have a client and you're giving them an opportunity to tell their story in front of the tribunal, and it's your view as their solicitor that maybe by them telling their story to the tribunal, it's going to go against their desires to be released into the community. H- how does that, there, there appears to be a conflict there to me that you're, when your job as their lawyer is to act in their best interests and if you allow them to speak at the tribunal, uh, that potentially you're jeopardising what, what they want. Is that, do you understand what I'm Yes, it, it can be a challenging scenario and... I always say to clients that the tribunal likes to hear from them directly because ultimately the purpose of the tribunal is to ensure that people's welfare is is looked after and that's the paramount purpose. I may on occasions of course say to the client that look for example if they want if I know that they're wanting to tell the tribunal something that is quite clearly delusional 
often that's already reflected in the doctor's reports anyway, so it's not really going to cause any further harm by them repeating that to the tribunal because that evidence is often already before the tribunal in, in a documentary form. Mm. So I really will leave the option up to the patient as to whether or not they wish to participate. Generally speaking, we encourage them to do so because the purpose of the tribunal is not about punishment in any way, but it's about being therapeutic. Mm. Dr. Hollis. Um, one of the things that we have to look at as the tribunal is whether staying in hospital as an involuntary patient is the least restrictive way that people can receive safe and effective care. So it is something that we're really interested in. If someone in hospital can talk about a way that they could receive safe and effective care at home, being supported by um, private psychiatrists, by family members and so on. But one area where we really are interested in is whether they have any alternative for um, hospitalisation, anywhere that's as effective and less restrictive. I guess this jurisdiction is kind of known as, and, and you've kind of talked about this, Callum, as a, as a therapeutic jurisdiction. Can you talk a little bit more about that and about some of the steps that you take as a solicitor in this jurisdiction to make sure that, I guess, you're providing legal assistance and representation in a, I guess, a trauma-informed way and in a way that isn't going to harm that relationship between the treating team and, and your client? Yeah, so I think there's a number of different things that, or a number of ways that this can occur. So first of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think it's always great that the patients do um, speak up and contribute in hearings and the tribunal also expect that and will often talk directly to the patient rather than through their lawyer as would happen in most other jurisdictions. Uh, so that's always very important. The other thing is that family members are encouraged to attend and participate to provide support to their uh, loved ones who may be patients. And there's no expectation that the family members will necessarily speak in the hearings because there's an understanding that it may put them in somewhat of an awkward position if their view conflicts with that of the patient. But nonetheless, it's uh, their attendance is encouraged and certainly their contribution is encouraged from the tribunal where they feel comfortable to contribute. Just in terms of the relationship with the treating team and the treating doctors, the, the tribunal really is an opportunity more than anything to create a greater level of understanding between the uh, treating team and the patient. And the tribunal can often play an important role there in sort of almost um, mediating, so to speak, uh, where there may be tensions in that relationship by essentially trying to reason sometimes with the patient and make them realise that the, the treating uh, team do have their best interests at heart and often they may be coming at things from a slightly different perspective, but ultimately everyone there is concerned with the patient's welfare. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what's at stake at the tribunal and, and why your role is so important at that tribunal? And you said before that people can be voluntary patients in a mental health facility. Is that common where you'll have clients... Um, where they will they will want to go into a mental health facility and yeah. certainly um, so very often people will present themselves to hospital and during they may remain voluntary throughout their stay at the hospital uh, for some people they may undergo a change of classification so to speak while they're in hospital they may be changed from voluntary to involuntary that would commonly occur perhaps where the person was wanting to leave and it was quite clear that it was not safe for them to do so then they may be scheduled uh, or alternatively they may start refusing to take treatment that the treating team may believe that they require and therefore the only way that someone can be involuntarily or treated without their consent is by bringing them underneath the Mental Health Act. 
can you talk a little bit about what happens at the hearing when you go to the mental health review tribunal? So for a mental health inquiry, which is someone's first appearance before the tribunal following their admission, they go before one member of the tribunal and that's a, a legal member. And for their reviews after that point, they go before a three member panel. And that's where there's a legal member, a member that's a psychiatrist like Dr. Hollis, and a third member who's what's referred to as a suitably qualified uh, member. Often they're uh, perhaps someone with a psychology background, a nursing background, or a social work background, amongst other areas. And essentially at the tribunal, the treating team is asked what outcome they're asking for the tribunal for, and they'll get an opportunity essentially to tell the tribunal uh, why they're seeking the order that they're seeking. and Basically, it addresses, or what they say addresses, the criteria under the Mental Health Act. What are the symptoms? What are the risks? And is there a less restrictive uh, form of care available that's consistent with safe and effective treatment? And um, ourselves as solicitors will have an opportunity to question the treating team and the tribunal will ordinarily also ask questions of the treating team and um, the patient themselves will have an opportunity to be heard and so will any family members that are present. Dr Hollis, with the gravity of the decisions that the tribunal is making, does it ever happen where you, where you want to ask the doctors or the treating team for more information before you're satisfied that they've met the test of whether somebody should be involuntarily detained? Or um, So, yes, there's often a discussion and sometimes um, some people present more strongly than others and so it is a matter of asking questions both of the treating team and of the person involved to come to a decision. The other area in which the tribunal makes decisions is regarding consent for electroconvulsive therapy. And sometimes there are things that haven't been discussed uh, by the treating team that we're interested to know about, things about their general medical health, about any anaesthetic risk. And so, yeah, we'll take a line of inquiry there to satisfy ourselves before we make a decision. And sometimes on occasions, the matter might be adjourned for more information. The way that you make decisions, is it often that you there will be a brief adjournment and you will need to consider the evidence before you and, and you confer with your fellow members. But how does that decision-making process work? So it does depend a little bit on the constitution of the particular tribunal. But in general, yes, there's a, a pause. We let everyone know that we're about to make a decision. We ask them if there are any final comments they want to make. Um, and then we usually if it's by video, we break the transmission or we might leave the room and discuss the evidence and make a decision. We also discuss how that decision um, will be conveyed to the person. So sometimes it's in the person's best interest to have that decision fairly quickly conveyed, but sometimes it's important for them to understand the reasons um, behind that decision as well. And the different orders, I guess, either of you, what are the different orders that the Mental Health Review Tribunal can make? So the tribunal is often asked to make an involuntary patient order and an involuntary patient order can be made for up to a maximum of uh, three months if the person has been in hospital for less than 12 months. Uh, alternatively, they can also make a community treatment order, which means that a person can receive uh, compulsory treatment when they're in the community. Ordinarily, a community treatment order would involve them being required to take their medication, uh, being required to meet with a case manager at their local community mental health centre, and also required to meet with a psychiatrist of their community mental health centre. As Dr Hollis mentioned, they can also make orders for electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, in fact, if a person is an involuntary patient, then those orders can only be made by the tribunal.
We can also make orders of financial management order that can be made at the inquiry, but can also be made by the three member panel. And again, we sometimes look at financial management orders and see if they could be revoked. So we sometimes receive applications about that. Um, and there are some lower frequency things as well. So consent to surgical treatment and so on. So say somebody has a, a community treatment order is made or an order is made that they are an involuntary patient and, and they're required to be detained in a mental health facility and say an order has been made for three months and then their mental illness uh, due to treatment or for whatever reason um, abates. Yes, so it's important to note that the order is actually for a review date. So when they say that the order is made for three months, it simply means that they'll be reviewed by the tribunal in three months in the event that they're still in hospital. So in the interim, the treating team can discharge them and in fact must discharge them as soon as they believe that the patient no longer satisfies the criteria under the Act. The criteria being that they have the symptoms that I mentioned earlier. Uh, that there are risk of serious harm as a result of those symptoms uh, and there's no less restrictive form of care that is consistent with safe and effective treatment. So it really is an ongoing process where the treating team will have regard to that criteria essentially all of the time and can and must discharge them under the Act as soon as they believe it is appropriate to do so. Dr Hollis. Can you talk about what are some of the most common mental illnesses that you encounter at the Mental Health Review Tribunal? So generally we see people with psychotic or mood disorders and the diagnoses that might be involved in that would be schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar affective disorder or depression. Um, sometimes we see people with drug-induced psychosis where their hospital stay has been a bit longer than average and they might be seen uh, at the mental health inquiry. And then Often for people, they have more than one condition. So we might see very commonly people with comorbid substance misuse, occasionally people with eating disorders. And then because the Mental Health Act defines symptoms rather than diagnoses, sometimes we see people with dementia who have psychotic features um, in their illness. And you said comorbid substance misuse. Uh, can you explain what that means? So comorbid just means that you might have two illnesses together. So you might have, for instance, schizophrenia, but as well as that, uh, be using substances and be dependent on substances. Is the evidence fairly strong that certain substances increase the likelihood of mental illnesses? So yes, um, so obviously there are genetic factors and environmental factors in um, the development of a mental illness. In terms of schizophrenia, it does seem that the use of cannabis uh, doubles the risk of developing schizophrenia, the use of cannabis triples the risk of developing bipolar illness, and there are other factors that are involved. So early use of cannabis is a more significant risk. We do know that in schizophrenia, there's alterations in the dopamine transmission uh, and dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Antipsychotic medications by and large block dopamine at certain receptors and drugs such as amphetamines and methamphetamines, cocaine, they increase dopamine. So we do know that they uh, cause relapses and suspect that they might be important in the genesis of mental illness as well. When you talk about genetic factors, is there any idea of the breakdown in terms of what percentage is genetic and what percentage is environmental? Or? So I guess my first point is that schizophrenia, as we know it, probably is a collection of different illnesses that have different causes, but have similar um, 
phenomenology. So they look much the same, but the causes are different. So that does make research a little bit challenging. In terms of identical twins, the concordance rate for schizophrenia is about 50%. So if one twin has schizophrenia, there's a 50% chance that the other will. For diazygotic twins, so fraternal twins, the risk is about 4%. Um, the studies are a little bit more variable with bipolar affective disorder. Uh, for identical twins, the risk is somewhere between 40 and 70%, and the risk for non-identical twins is between 5 and 10%. So we see that there's a genetic component, but obviously it's not a perfect concordance, so there are important environmental factors. When we talk about mental illness and, and the causes, would you say that the causes are well understood or would you say that there's still quite some way to go in terms of understanding what what causes mental illness? Uh, so I think there is a lot of research that happens. Obviously the brain is the most complex organ within the body and the most difficult to understand. So there's a lot that we don't know. Um, in terms of genetics, one really interesting study from Nature in 2014 was a genome-wide association study looking at 37,000 people with schizophrenia, comparing them to 110,000 people without schizophrenia. And they found 108 areas of the genome that were significantly overrepresented in the people with schizophrenia. Um, and those areas included dopamine receptors, glutamatergic transmission, and interestingly, proteins that control or influence the immune response. Um, but there's a lot that we don't know. You talked about some of the more common mental illnesses that you see at the Mental Health Review Tribunal. Can you talk about what the symptoms of those mental illnesses are? Often people may have delusions. So that's a false fixed belief that's not amenable to reason, that's not understandable on the basis of people's background, their culture, their religion, and so on. And they uh, can occur in different sort of areas. So sometimes people have persecutory delusions. Obviously that can be quite distressing if you're feeling that the police or ASIO, CIA are after you. Sometimes they can be grandiose. So for instance, people might believe they have special powers or a special responsibility to save the world. Uh, and in mood disorders, sometimes the delusions follow the nature of the mood. So in depression, people might believe they have um, cancer, a terminal illness. They might believe that they've lost all their money. They may believe, in fact, that they're already dead. So there can be quite extreme delusions. And sometimes the more extreme delusions occur with the person's personality uh, so or identity. They believe that they are shapeshifters, that they can change their shape to be various animals uh, and so on. So it can be quite profound, uh, the delusions. Hallucinations are also very common. So that's when you have an internal perception in the absence of external stimuli, and they can occur in any sensory modality. So they could be auditory or visual, tactile, olfactory, and so on. Often visual and tactile hallucinations occur in organic conditions or in drug use or drug withdrawal, though they can occur in schizophrenia as well. Auditory hallucinations are perhaps the most common in schizophrenia, and they can be benign or quite distressing. So sometimes people can have a constant commentary of negative uh, comments about themselves, and sometimes the hallucinations can be quite commanding. So they can tell the person to do something benign, like eat, 
but they can also tell people to harm themselves or harm others. And that's obviously extremely concerning and distressing. In addition, sometimes people's thoughts are disordered. They don't put their thoughts in a logical way and that can vary depending on whether someone has mania or schizophrenia. Uh, and in mania, there's a primary elevation of the mood. So people might feel elevated, but they might also be irritable. And with that, they may have decreased sleep, increased uh, spending, increased energy and libido, uh, rapid speech and thoughts that jump around. And as I mentioned before, uh, grandiose delusions. In depression, the mood is low. People might have a poor appetite, poor concentration. They might dwell on negative things, feel quite guilty. They may have thoughts of suicide or passively wishing that they were dead. In addition, People with schizophrenia sometimes have what's called negative symptoms. And interestingly, the Mental Health Act is not at all interested in negative symptoms, although they can sometimes be the things that hold people back from improving their function even more. So they're things like apathy and withdrawal. So the person is not engaging quite as well. And that can be difficult for family members uh, to cope with. With positive symptoms, such as delusions and hallucinations, you can clearly see that it relates to the illness. But if someone is just lacking motivation, not really getting out, staying in their room, it's harder to attribute that to the illness and that can be a point of conflict with the family. I was just going to say in relation to the negative symptoms, whilst the Mental Health Act um, does not have much regard to them and focuses on the positive symptoms. That's perhaps where the tribunal and even the mental health advocacy service can play an important role in terms of ensuring that the patients are receiving psychosocial support while they're in hospital. So obviously a lot of the hospitals have access to social workers and psychologists and often um, their admission to hospital is actually an opportunity to ensure that we can get patients the support they need uh, in the community to reach their full potential and of course now with the National Disability Insurance Scheme there's an even bigger role to play there for uh, advocacy services, community workers, social workers in ensuring that uh, patients are receiving those supports in the community to essentially live the best life that they possibly can. The one thing that I'm really interested in is, is yeah, how, how holistic the care is that people receive at mental health facilities. So it's, yeah, no, it's interesting yeah, to look, hear. Look, so certainly in the metropolitan areas, there's access to social workers, counsellors, uh, or social workers, psychologists, and uh, those types of supports are very important. I think the challenge always is that they may, uh, patients are often discharged after not spending a great deal of time in hospital, which is obviously a positive outcome, but there's also not necessarily a great opportunity for follow-up unless uh, things have are sorted very quickly um, during their admission. So as we know, applications to NDIS, for example, take a great deal of time. So it's important that um, things happen quite quite as prompt as possible when people are in hospital, but of course um, hospitals are also subject to resource constraints. And it's well known that um, family therapy can be helpful for people who are living at home with their family, so education for the person but also for their family about the illness because people do better when the family environment is quite warm and supportive and people don't do well with a lot of criticism or coldness. So sometimes education is important in helping the families to support the person. Would that go beyond the role of the tribunal members if, if there are family members present during a hearing? Is that something that the members might even say that, you know, we, in our experience? <laughs> so, no, not really, because I think that's more of something that the therapeutic team would do. But I guess I was just talking a little bit about the role of negative symptoms mm -hmm. and of conflict in the family and the importance of education and support, which is something that 
occurs both in hospital but also with the community teams. And sometimes these psychosocial matters are important in terms of managing that person's risk in, of relapse in the community. And so the Mental Health Act also allows for consideration to be given to a person's continuing condition. So for some patients, even though they may not have positive symptoms when they come before the tribunal, uh, the treating team may say we need time to ensure that there are better community supports in place. And what the treating team will inform the tribunal is that the risk of serious harm is that this person may have relapsed uh, into an active phase of mental illness quite quickly in the past on multiple occasions as a result of not having those social supports in, in place. Uh, and that's particularly common for people that perhaps have unstable housing arrangements or, or, or homeless or, or couch surfing. So these factors, I guess, in a, in a roundabout way do come into consideration for the tribunal just in terms of what that discharge planning is because obviously that discharge planning feeds into uh, that person's risk of relapse and therefore whether or not they present a risk of serious harm to themselves or others. Yes, I'd certainly agree with that. And when you're looking at relapse, there are three big factors to consider. One is have people adhered to medication? The second is have they used substances? And the third is the role of stress. So I think it is important that people have a really good plan when they're discharged from hospital to give them the best chance of being well and not coming back. We've been talking about the symptoms and some of the more common mental illnesses that you see. Can, can you talk about some of the common treatments for some of those mental illnesses that we've talked about? Yes, and so I guess I have a few provisos. One is that, as I've mentioned before, schizophrenia is probably a collection of different illnesses. The second is that it does depend on the degree of the illness as to which treatment might be appropriate. So, for instance, in depression, you can have a range from mild depression to quite severe psychotic depression. And I guess the third issue that I'd raise is that you have to look at the people who are actually entered into the trials and sometimes they're not the same as people who are involuntarily admitted into hospital. So they might be underrepresented in the trial information. So obviously, as we've talked about, there's a holistic approach to treatment that involves psychological, social factors, also diet and exercise and so on. But I'll just specifically talk about the physical treatments. So talking about medications and ECT. Uh, so electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, there was an excellent meta-analysis that I don't think has been beaten yet, uh, published in The Lancet in 2013 that compared antipsychotic medication for use in people with schizophrenia and had a look at the different efficacy and also at the different side effects. So it rates all the antipsychotics in terms of all these features. And basically most antipsychotic medications have a moderate effect size, but clozapine has a large effect size. As we've talked about before, drugs such as amphetamines and methamphetamines work in the opposite direction to most antipsychotic medication. So it's possible that efficacy for antipsychotic medication will be impaired if people are also using amphetamines. And that's kind of fairly obvious. Uh, as I said before, with depression, it does depend upon the degree of the depressive illness. So people with mild depression might do well with talking therapies or even with CBT that are on apps or on the um, internet such as Mood Gym. And what's, apps, what's CBT? Uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. So it's just one of the talking therapies. So basically if you have mild depression, 
A talking therapy is not the is probably the best first line treatment. As depression gets more severe, um, there's more of a need for medication or ECT. ECT has superior efficacy to antidepressants and antipsychotic medication in severe depression, and it's considered a first line treatment for psychotic depression. Some of the studies have response rates over 90%, which is actually excellent for a treatment in psychiatry. And in non-psychotic depression, where people have failed on multiple antidepressant medications, the response rate for ECT is about 50%, which again, compares favorably with trialing another antidepressant medication. Uh, there are also mood stabilizers, so things like lithium, valproate, lamotrigine, carbamazepine, they have efficacy for treating mania. Some antipsychotic medications also have efficacy for that, such as aripiprazole, olanzapine, and quetiapine. Lamotrigine is another anticonvulsant medication used as a mood stabiliser, and that has moderate efficacy for treating bipolar depression. But with lamotrigine, obviously, the risks of the side effects have to be weighed against its efficacy. For some of our community workers listening, they may be concerned about electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Can you talk about some of those concerns and whether they may be justified or not. So the anaesthetic has improved uh, and people are now, they have a brief anaesthetic and their muscles are quite relaxed when they receive the treatment. In addition, we know more about giving the treatment, so about the right amount of electrical stimulus that will produce the beneficial effects with minimal side effects. Can you talk about people's age and whether people are more likely to have mental illness at certain age and mm. uh, whether that mental illness is more likely to go away at a certain age? Mm. So in terms of schizophrenia, it can be classified uh, into three groups by age of onset. So early onset schizophrenia refers to those who become unwell before the age of 40, and that includes about 77% of the cohort. But the peak time for developing schizophrenia is in early adulthood. Uh, then late onset schizophrenia is those who begin their illness between 40 and 60. Uh, and very late onset schizophrenia-like psychosis begins after the age of 60. But if you follow that group of people for five years, you find that at least 50% develop cognitive impairment and dementia. So I think they represent a different group from the early onset and the late onset group. And in fact, the very late onset schizophrenia-like psychosis group don't have an increased risk of schizophrenia in their family history. So I think it probably relates more to vascular risk factors and perhaps risk factors for dementia. What's really important is that when people have their first episode of psychosis that they receive excellent care. So particularly the first two to five years is really important for the prognosis. So they should be having good support and also um, good advice about medication. For bipolar affective disorder, the mean age of onset is between 20 and 30 years, though there appear to be two peaks. So there's a peak 15 to 24 years and then a second peak at 45 to 54 years. Uh, and the onset of unipolar depression, so just people who get depressed and don't develop mania, is a little bit later, somewhere between 25 to 30 years. In epidemiological surveys, younger cohorts are more depressed than older cohorts. Uh, but this may be an artefact of the surveys because the epidemiological surveys don't necessarily review people who are in residential aged care facilities. So there might be an underreporting of depression in older age. We know that 
in older age, depression often occurs with other medical conditions like dementia, stroke, heart disease, Parkinson's disease, and so on. So if you have a look at those particular illnesses that uh, have a high prevalence at old age, they often have quite a high prevalence of depression with them. But basically, a mental illness can occur throughout the lifespan. And sometimes uh, periods of change are times when people are more at risk. So adolescence, uh, postpartum, menopause, at retirement. So when there's change, perhaps there's a bit of increased risk. For our community workers who are listening, do you have any practical tips for them on how they can support someone with a mental illness? And I guess that may vary quite a bit depending on what the mental illness is. And I think it also varies uh, in terms of the roles of the community workers. So if they're care coordinators working in a community mental health centre, then they would know all of this and they would be dealing with people who've come through the system already. But in general, I think it's important to recognise that people with their first episode of psychosis or depression don't necessarily understand what's happening to them. Because the illness is happening to the thinking self, it's much harder to conceptualise as an illness. So I think it is really important to talk to people and support them, but if they haven't already, suggest that they go and see their general practitioner. So the general practitioner can help with the diagnosis and help them access the appropriate treatment. I think it's also important, especially with someone who's got a first episode of depression, to talk about the possibility of thoughts of self-harm. Talking about suicide won't make people do it or won't make people think about it, uh, but it does open up the possibility for having a conversation. And again, if there are any concerns about harm for self or harm for others, it may be important to take that person to the emergency department at a hospital rather than waiting for them to see a, a GP. Uh, sometimes helping people, it's a matter of waiting for the medications to kick in. So someone's got a melancholic depression, it's a very medical depression, you think they're going to get better with the treatment, but somehow they've just got to get through those next four to six weeks as they wait for medication to take its effect. So sometimes it's helping people pass the time, going for a walk, doing activities of daily living with them, just being companionable. Uh, and I guess ex not expecting people who are severely depressed to be able to make much conversation, but to realise that just your companionship might be important. When the illness is fairly well treated, but there are ongoing symptoms, then it might be a matter of helping people to do things they find a little bit difficult. So engage in social groups, do a bit of physical activity, just help them with the things that they might have lost their confidence about. And I think it's important for people who have an ongoing mental illness to have goals about what they would like to achieve. And so perhaps for you to be able to find out what their goals are and help them to achieve those goals. I think it's really important for community workers if they're working in the health system to talk about side effects of medication with people and to encourage them to talk with their doctors about that and to be an advocate. Because apart from clozapine, which we know is more effective than other antipsychotic medications, often there's a choice. Uh, and it's really what medications you tolerate well, what side effects you're having. So I think it's really important to be able to articulate that to the doctor and then to see what options are available. From the mental health advocacy services perspective, um, community workers can play a really important role in terms of attending tribunal uh, appearances with their uh, clients. And their role is mainly around 
assisting in getting a better understanding about a person's uh, longer term history. So often uh, the hospital when someone first presents is attempting to get some indication as to the person's uh, history over a number of years and that can often be quite challenging for the hospital and therefore if there's the community worker's involvement then they can assist perhaps in giving a better um, longitudinal understanding of what's been going on in this person's life uh, and also they play an important role in terms of showing to the tribunal that there may be a less restrictive form of care that's consistent with safe and effective treatment if this person already has some community supports in place and therefore they may be uh, less likely to remain in hospital for a longer period of time or they may be able to follow up on their own mental health care without the need for a community treatment order if they already have those supports in place. Uh, community workers, are they ever referring clients to your service? Yes, they can. Uh, whether the client is in the community or in hospital, uh, we can always give them advice around uh, Mental Health Review Tribunal and the Mental Health Act. We can also provide legal information to community workers. So whilst we're here primarily to provide advice to people who may be receiving involuntary treatment, we can also provide legal information to those community workers to assist them in best supporting the patient. So the best way to make contact with us is by calling the Mental Health Advocacy Service. And in terms of assisting people, you assist people all across New South Wales, is that right? That's correct. So there's a number of solicitors who are part of the Mental Health Advocacy Service, but we also provide advice to people anywhere in the state and we provide representation as well in tribunal hearings at mental health facilities around the entire state. Thank you both so much for your time, Callum and Dr Hollis. Really appreciate your insights and I hope that our audience has found this very interesting. Thank you again. The links to everything mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes below. If you enjoyed the episode, please let us know by clicking the Tell Us What You Think link. Until next time, thanks so much from all of us here at the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales.